thanks for joining us for this Prima podcast. My name is Shonda Ragland. I am the Director of Education and Training at Prima. October is National Cybersecurity Awareness Month. National Cybersecurity Awareness Month was designed to increase awareness regarding the significance of cybersecurity as well as provide the necessary resources to ensure people are safe and secure online. To commemorate the 15th anniversary of National Cybersecurity Awareness Month, Prima created a National Cybersecurity Awareness Month podcast series. Each week during the month of October, Prima will feature podcasts that share important information about cybersecurity. On this podcast, Eugene Kipnis, a program specialist at the Multi-State Sharing and Analysis Center, and Joshua Trainer, Senior Cyber Intelligence Analyst at the Multi-State Sharing and Analysis Center, will discuss cyber attacks. We will also be joined by Taekwon Gilbert, a member of Prima's education and training team. Taekwon will moderate the discussion. Enjoy the podcast. Eugene and Josh, thank you for being a part of the Cybersecurity Podcast Series. What controls other than training can be put in place to prevent the business email compromises and other types of more normal fraud? And what are the common types of cyber attacks? All right. Well, yeah, I'll definitely start with the uh, thank you very much for having us, by the way. I'd love to start first with the what are the common types of cyber attacks. The first major one that we would definitely want to mention is malware, which malware is defined as software designed to perform malicious actions, either to an individual, pretty much to an individual machine. So these don't necessarily have to be the changing of anything. Though you'll see something like that, a lot of people might think destruction and such as that, but uh, it can also just be malware designed to monitor user actions. It's really that uh, the the ill intent behind it would be the first one. The second category, I would say, is business email compromise and then the whole host of like social engineering-based frauds and schemes. Uh, these are very common, unfortunately all too common, at least as we see here at the multi-state ISAC. People fall victim to these all the time. And, and for your reference, business email compromise is going to include things like people sending falsified emails appearing to be a CEO or executive requesting wire transfers. Spoiler alert, that wire transfer is probably going to be directed to another country or an illicit bank account. Uh, the, other, the other examples might be direct deposit compromises, seeking data or stealing data in order to lead to someone's paycheck being rerouted. This is unfortunately also very common. W-2 scams, some of these are huge. They're not just grabbing one person, but rather many employees as well. That's just a really big category of types of attacks there. And for controls other than training, uh, there's a lot of technical controls. I'll, I'll let Josh talk a little bit about the ones for malware, and then I'll talk about some for business email compromise. Yeah, as I say, the, uh, definitely the technical controls that you have for malware. Well, first off, one of the main entry points for malware is, is through emails. So you can uh, pretty much uh, adding a lot of different controls in your email gateway uh, to prevent spoofing. I think uh, like, uh, SPF and DCAM is one of these things that are, that are out there that helps prevent spoofing. On top of that, definitely working on user access controls. So those things, uh, if a malware can take over a user's station, so to speak, and they're utilizing their account, well, if that user has access to everything, then that piece of malware, in essence, has access to everything. So that way it can spread. It's also able to 
you know, move and access information that it has rights for. It can write information. So it's really going to use uh, what they call their, their UACs and such. So if you place limits on that, you're going to place limits on what that malware can do if you're hit. Now, on the business email compromise and fraud type protections, some of them are actually going to come from the finance industry and from the accounting industry. Picture the scene from a movie where the nuclear subcommander needs two people turning the key in order to fire the missile. That equivalent for needing two people in different job titles or at different levels approving a wire transfer. Because treat it like that. That's your, your, your organization's assets. It happens to school districts. It happens to governments. It's not just Fortune 500 companies getting targeted by this. So even just having that second set of eyes to say, that's a valid transfer. That's a control that you're building in that isn't even technical. That's not high cybersecurity technology. Again, that's like accounting work. The other controls that you can put into place are forms of like two-factor authentication, you know, to get into certain accounts. So if, if somebody actually does manage to social engineer their way into stealing credentials, if you can't get into that account without, say, uh, having a token or your cell phone to, you know, receive authentication through an app, an app or an SMS text or an email. Uh, without that second code, the person who's, say, uh, over on another continent who's trying to get into your HR account, they can't do it. So those are kind of some ways to easily hopefully prevent these types of fraud. But I do want to note there's a lot of people out there trying to get around that, too. So, again, it's, it's not foolproof, but, but it's important. What small changes in everyday use can a home user make to be more secure? Well, really getting back to, it's really all about the password when you're, <laughs> when I start thinking about, about home users or pretty much that's also at work. So, you know, a lot of passwords are reused both in the workplace and at home. And so what happens if, let's say, you get compromised via LinkedIn? Well, they might actually now have your credentials to, let's say, maybe get into your work accounts, or maybe if you've got your banking accounts using the exact same passwords and such. So so definitely password reuse, if I had to name a number one. And then uh, password complexity, that's key. Even if, the, let's say you reuse, you never reuse a password, but you know, you start with A for Apple and you work your way through <laughs> through that, that direction, uh, you're going to get compromised very quickly via several different types of ways. So, yeah, so definitely just when you think about passwords, thinking about the reuse of them and the complexity of them. Some of the other things I like to think about are easy things like not using public Wi-Fi that's unsecured. So that, that could go for a home user, but that being a kind of innate thing that you think about every time you, you pop open your laptop in a public place, you know, that might trickle up into the workplace where you're on a work trip and you're in a hotel. Maybe you don't log into your sensitive accounts through that without having other countermeasures in place or other security mechanisms. Another thing would be, you know, Josh mentioned passwords in general, uh, just having one. So it's actually shocking that sometimes individuals might have on their mobile device, they may not even opt to use a pin key to enter the device, or they may not have a screen timeout, which is where, you know, say your phone or your tablet or, or laptop 
if you walk away from it for 15 minutes and leave it running and open, if somebody comes across it who's malicious during that time, they can access it without having to enter a code. Setting that so that maybe after a couple of minutes, a reasonable amount of time of it not being used, it locks itself. It goes back to that uh, requiring of a password. Other than that, I think a, a healthy dose of skepticism is a really, really great thing to put in everyday life. It's not paranoia if they're really out to get you. So look at your emails, even at the personal level, as, you know, do I really need to answer this? Do I need to provide this amount of personal information? Should I ever send that through email? If it's really sensitive, you probably shouldn't send it through an email. And I do want to mention on top of that with that sensitive nature there, uh, the use of social media. <laughs> so, so you definitely want to think about limiting the information that you supply on your social media accounts because, you know, those in general can be harvested. That information can be harvested to be used against you, to be sold. Uh, there's just a lot of different ways, and most people don't really think about the fact of uh, what they put on their accounts. And then secondary along that nature is locking down those accounts for public consumption so that people cannot – so that just nobody – outside of, you know, the circles that you want to see your your profile or your information can do so. Yeah, it's actually, uh, I always think back to our Intel manager, Stacy. She always jokes about those online quizzes. What was your uh, What was your school year that you graduated? What high school mascot did they have? What was the color of your first car? Well, those are all security questions for banking accounts and for, for other things. So social media can be perilous if you, you know, publicly send all that info out there. Definitely so. So, how can someone plan to deal with a cyber attack or fraud incident? Well, I'm going to harp firstly on develop an incident response process. I mean, that is, it, you know, don't just have a meeting and sit down. Actually put it in writing, have it somewhere, practice what you preach, so to speak. You can find, you know, I'm not going to tell you to go with this exact incident response process, but, you know, there, there, you definitely can develop a plan that's in place for execution before an incident can occur. So definitely, definitely do that. And then uh, that plan should also always have at the end, this is the one thing I will say, a lessons learned page that way. So such incidents will not hopefully happen again, or, you know, maybe you'll figure out maybe we should have dealt with this in a different way. So uh, definitely a key there would be the incident response process. Yeah. And once you have all that down, which a big component is even just identifying who to call and when, for what type of attack, who on your own staff to bring in that situation room. Think about things like uh, if, if we're, we're talking about a business email compromise or a big financial hit to somebody, you know, consider looking into resources at the federal level that can help you out. You know, the FBI is tasked with helping, you know, go after criminals that are predatory against businesses and governments in the United States. Uh, there's a resource out there. It's called the, the process is called the financial fraud kill chain. You know, the example is if you're if you're hit with the minimum of a fifty thousand dollar piece of fraud or um, a fraud occurrence, and it's going into become an international transfer. They're trying to take your money out due to like one of these illicit emails. And it's been less than 72 hours since that wire transfer was initiated. Contact the FBI, reach out for help, and they can actually work with you to hopefully prevent that transfer from going through and prevent your funds from leaving, or even maybe reversing some of that. It's key to remember that you can ask for help reach out to them in the cases of crime. They may have more resources for you than, than you can think. And if you're at a state or a local government, you can always reach out to the multi-state ISAC. We work with public
public entities here, and we provide assistance with digital forensics and incident response. So uh, people are able to get our second set of, uh, you know, expert eyes from our CERT to help out. That's our computer emergency response team. That's all they do. Think about these reporting agencies, these places you can go to at no cost that can help out first. Also, on top of that, Eugene brought something up that really, really hit with me there, but network mapping. So understanding what your network looks like is actually a heck of a way to understand how to deal with it. And I I know that some people might think, man, that's a pretty easygoing and, you know, duh moment. But uh, just really itemizing your network, knowing exactly what is on your network and then understanding how something can traverse through your network. So that way, if you are hit with a piece of malware, you can at least understand, you know, what that device can reach out to, where the choke points are and such. What types of attacks do you think will become more prevalent in the future? Well, I definitely would say that uh, the current vector that is being used the most right now would be through mouse spam, which is attacking the user. And so I want to say that attacks coming through that angle are going to definitely continue to trend until we, you know, learn how to as a society, you know, not answer them. So we're fighting human nature on that one. So definitely uh, attacking the user. One thing is that since our, our information is worth so much, info stealers uh, are big right now, such as Emotet, which is, which is a big one that uh, once you're hit with that, it's pretty much creating a fire cell on your network. It's taking all of your information that it can find and it's transporting that, that information you know, to the actors so that it can be sold. So pretty much as the value for that information continues to exist and as users are, you know, going to continue clicking on things that they maybe shouldn't supposed to also as users have more access controls than they need. So pretty much a buildup of all the stuff that we've talked about as these things, if they're not taken care of, then attacking the user and trying to get that information are going to continue to be good ways for for an actor to go with. I also think that a common type of malware that might become more prevalent in the future is uh, we saw a lot of this in the winter. There's also malware that isn't just stealing your information, but stealing your power and your computing time. Cryptocurrency miners, so they, they basically spend time using your computer's electricity and assets to generate money, digital money, for a cyber attacker. So the problem with that is, number one, they're stealing your computing resources. So if that's like a public web server, your customers or your clients might experience uh, issues getting on that site. Secondly, the costs of power for quote-unquote mining Bitcoin, as an example, are pretty astronomical. It's a lot of power draw. It's it's running re- really hot there. It's, it's using a lot of computing power. We saw that a lot with the price of Bitcoin up. Things are a little bit quieter now, but I could see if cryptocurrency makes another boom again, that's uh, certainly going to happen. And then I, I guess ransomware, it, it's just not going to go anywhere. Yeah, as you know, yet again, as long as people are clicking on stuff and allowing that access to your computer, you know, one of the biggest things is, is holding, holding that computer for extortion, holding your, your information for extortion. And so, yeah, so I don't think ransomware... Uh, though it may have decreased, you know, over the last couple of years, it, it definitely is not decreasing at a pace that we're going to see it disappear. Probably just changes as it continues. What are your best tips for spotting a phishing email attempt? Well, yeah, uh, when looking at phishing emails, 
One of the biggest things that will stand out is there's usually some sort of sense of urgency within the email. That's especially true that I've seen with the uh, BECs. There's usually like a, I need this now, give it to me. Can, can you send it to my iPad? You know, I'm in a meeting. I need it now before I get out or, and such. But there's, uh, to most phishing attempts, you know, they'll say maybe something along the lines of, you need to change your password right now, or you need to, or instead of change your password, I guess, you need to verify your password right now for your credentials or else we're going to shut down your, your, your account, you know? So they, they usually give you something where you don't think about it, you're going to click. Another tip in spotting one is if it's an unsolicited email. I mean, you know, a lot of times people can get hacked and they will send out emails. Well, if you get an email from somebody who hasn't, you know, emailed you in let's say six months and you're not expecting an email from them, then it might warrant a second look on your part. Within the email, abnormal writing styles, especially if you know the user, that's one. Also, a lot of these emails, you know, they seem to be very urgent, but yet these people don't know your name. Uh, that happens sometimes. So definitely look at the salutations and uh, how that's being utilized. And then a lot of these especially a lot of these email campaigns, English is not necessarily the first language. So you can look for misspellings and uh, just, uh, you know, yet again, just, just an abnormal writing style. And another, another thing to note is whenever you're looking at an email and scrutinizing it as to whether it's legitimate or spam or, or a fraud, if you ever see a link, just make sure you hover your cursor over it without clicking uh, that'll kind of reveal the true location. Also, if it's one of those shortened URLs, there's actually services out there. If you Google them, like URL lengtheners, that'll that'll help hopefully help you see what the real URL is. That can be a popular way for some threat actors to hide malicious links. As always, though, you know, like Josh said, unsolicited emails. If your bank sends you an unsolicited email saying verify your account at this link, you know, the alternative to that is just go to your browser, type in your bank's website, log in, and check if you need to do that. Don't use those links. Try to try to just, if you're not expecting it, you can always verify by going directly to the source. Another thing that's kind of a, a funny, another example of that kind of financial industry type control or like basic office control is if you weren't expecting an email and your coworker is freaking out asking for the W-2s for everyone in the company, pick up the phone and call them. Say, hey, did you really need those W-2s? Is this legitimate? That's a really easy way to do it. And, and if they ever complain, don't, don't be afraid to ask that question. Just always tell them, hey, you know, these days, a lot of emails can be fraudulent. People steal things that way. I just wanted to make sure we were doing this the right way. Yeah, I definitely don't think anybody, you know, these days with everything that's going on is going to, you know, second guess you just picking up the phone and giving them a call and saying, is, is this legitimate? I think that another another thing I'd like to say about that, get on my soapbox for a second, is it's really cool if you can get that culture in your workplace where people feel comfortable verifying and feel comfortable reporting suspicious things to IT. Your IT team might at first say, you know, maybe get a little bit overwhelmed with some of the things, but as people learn more and learn how to better spot things that are really suspicious, you'll be thankful you have that culture of, I'm going to report this, or I don't feel right about this, I'll talk to somebody, because that makes people you know, afraid, not afraid of cybersecurity professionals. We don't want the culture of no, we want the question of, how can I do this better? The question of, of how can I help? Yeah, and yet again, just piggybacking, because this is definitely an issue and something that you want to know a lot about is, 
in order to create that culture, you know, campaigns, having awareness campaigns on the fact that, yes, you know, if you think you spotted a phishing email, here's where you send it. That way users actually know, where does this go? Now that I think that this is an issue, what do I do with it? And so definitely just having those awareness campaigns and creating an environment where a user feels comfortable sending that information forward to get, you know, a security professional's take on it, on yes, this is an issue. Or no, it's fine. You can definitely click on it because, you know, I, I know in the industry we would prefer, <laughs> you know, having that type of user interaction where the user is thinking about that and has security on their mind. Thank you for tuning in to Prima's National Cybersecurity Awareness Month podcast series. Should you have any questions regarding this podcast or any podcast in the series, please email education at primacentral.org. To learn more about Prima's educational resources, please visit primacentral.org. Have a wonderful day.